This e-multiple sclerosis review podcast is presented by DKP Med Radio. There is very limited evidence for the use of other supplements in multiple sclerosis. At Mayo Clinic, our herb and supplements team generally recommend that patients have a exercise program and weight management program as the base of their non-pharmacologic management for any disease, because these have been shown to have the greatest impact on long-term survival. Non-pharmacologic MS symptom management. Welcome to E-Multiple Sclerosis Review. When the medications prescribed to manage the common symptoms of MS fail to provide enough relief, it becomes time to consider non-pharmacologic treatments. Supplements, cannabis, exercise programs, diets, which is most appropriate for which patient? Is there evidence? And what does it say? That's what we're here to talk about today with our guest, Dr. Oliver Tobin, a multiple sclerosis neurologist from the Department of Neurology at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. For Dr. Tobin's disclosures and additional CME information, please go to our website, emultiplesclerosisreview.org, and select the Volume 4, Issue 6 link. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of Emultiple Sclerosis Review. Dr. Tobin, thank you for joining us today. Great to be here, Bob. We've got a lot to talk about, so let's jump right in with our first learning objective. Discuss how non-pharmacologic treatments may be effective in relieving the common MS symptoms of urinary urgency, fatigue, spasticity, and gait dysfunction. Start us out in the clinic, if you would please, Dr. Tobin, with a patient scenario. Sure, Bob. Well, this patient is a 56-year-old woman with a history of optic neuritis in her 20s and three further episodes of myelitis in her 30s. She's been treated with the term or acetate from the age of 35. She reports urinary urgency, constipation, fatigue, and leg spasticity. MRI brain has not shown any new white matter lesions for the past 10 years, and she has been diagnosed with secondary progressive multiple sclerosis. The main reason for her visit today is to inquire as to whether she would benefit from any symptomatic treatments. Let's start by looking at the specific symptoms she wants to relieve. The first one you mentioned was urinary urgency. What would be your initial approach? Well, Bob, the first thing to do is to evaluate the patient before considering a medication, and that is by uh, taking an adequate history and exam. And then for specific evaluation of bladder symptoms, we usually order either a bladder ultrasound or a urodynamic study and urologic evaluation to evaluate for urinary retention and to identify signs of bladder dysfunction. The other thing to do is to evaluate for the use of any bladder irritants. And these are often missed by patients and physicians alike because of how ubiquitous they are. And common bladder irritants include caffeine, tobacco, alcohol, and even carbonated beverages, including sparkling water, chili peppers, citrus fruits, and vitamin C supplementation. Once bladder irritants have been removed from the picture, evaluating the medication list for any medications which could cause urinary urgency. After that, assuming that urinary retention has been excluded, use of an anticholinergic medication could be considered. Talk to us, if you would please, Dr. Tobin, about non-pharmacologic ways to relieve these symptoms. So I think that's a really important question, Bob. And I think when we think about non-pharmacologic treatments, sometimes we think about natural remedies or medications that are, are not prescribed. 
when I think about the non-pharmacologic management of bladder dysfunction, the most important things are the non-medication strategies. And so that would be making sure there's not urinary retention, making sure there's no constipation, removing the bladder irritants that we discussed and removing any medications, any prescribed medications that could be impacting bladder function. Regular exercise is also important for bladder function and timed voiding can be helpful to reduce the social impact of bladder dysfunction. And so when I think about non-pharmacologic strategies for managing bladder dysfunction, that's generally how we approach that. And also for the non-pharmacologic management of other symptoms related to multiple sclerosis. It's the removal of things that could be causing problems and promoting non-pharmacologic or non-medication related activities that can improve function. Along with her bladder symptoms, she also complained about constipation. Are the two related? Constipation can worsen bladder dysfunction. And so often when we ask patients about constipation, they say that they're not constipated. And one of the things that I've started to ask my fellows and nursing staff to do is to ask how often a patient has a bowel motion. And what we're aiming for is a single fully formed bowel motion per day. Often patients will say they're not constipated, but might report that they're having a bowel motion every two or three days. Treatment of constipation can improve bladder function. And typically that's initially done with diet. But if a patient needs laxatives, that can also be used. And we usually recommend that patients titrate the diet and laxatives to achieve a single fully formed bowel motion per day. Talk to us about spasticity and gait dysfunction, if you would, please. Spasticity and gait dysfunction are very common features of multiple sclerosis and are usually related to spinal cord dysfunction or spinal cord disease. Aren't those commonly treated with prescription medicines? Patients are often familiar with the use of antispasticity medications such as baclofen or tizanidine. However, the first step in management of spasticity is stretching exercises. Now, the stretching exercises are beneficial to reduce spasticity if the stretches are held for more than 30 seconds at a time. And that's quite a long time to hold a stretch if you've ever tried to do that. And I usually recommend that patients have a clock or a stopwatch to help them hold the stretch for that long. Needle studies have showed that the inhibition of the spinal reflex arc only occurs after 30 seconds of maintaining the stretch. So some physicians recommend that patients hold the stretch for up to 60 seconds. Is stretching effective for long-term relief? Stretching reduces the spasticity for about 12 hours. So the stretching needs to be performed twice per day. In patients who only have nocturnal spasticity, so spasms in the legs at night, stretching at night may be sufficient, but most people need to do it twice per day. If stretching is not sufficient, then medications can be used. We mentioned baclofen and tizanidine. Other strategies that can be used include botulinum toxin. Botulinum toxin is mostly beneficial for focal spasticity. So, for instance, a single leg with a contracted ankle may be responsive without causing too much weakness. Other less common strategies include spinal cord stimulation. And there are several devices actually that have been approved for transcutaneous spinal cord stimulation to reduce spasticity and improve gait dysfunction in patients with multiple sclerosis. The outcome measures for those devices are quite short-term, and so we don't have a long-term follow-up on them, but it is a promising avenue. A non-pharmaceutical treatment for spasticity that many patients have questions about is the use of medical cannabis. Certainly, medical cannabis is available in certain states. 
and has been shown to be beneficial, at least in patient reported measures of spasticity. The downside to medical cannabis is that it can cause some sedation. And there is an increased risk of cardiovascular events such as strokes or heart attacks and a small increase in the risk of psychosis. So it's rare that we tend to use that in clinical practice. Fatigue. It's one of the most seen symptoms in individuals with MS. Uh, talk to us, if you would, please, about addressing fatigue through non-pharmacologic approaches. So fatigue is extremely common in patients with multiple sclerosis, and it is usually multifactorial. I generally recommend an algorithmic approach to addressing fatigue. In patients with new disease or active inflammatory disease, the fatigue can be from neuroinflammation. And so the first step is to get an MRI of the brain and spine and ensure that there isn't active inflammation driving the fatigue. For most patients who have stable multiple sclerosis who don't have active disease, the first step is to review the medications. Patients, particularly with secondary progressive multiple sclerosis or primary progressive multiple sclerosis, are often on several sedating medications, including antispasticity medications, pain medications, sleeping medications, or anti-anxiety medications, which can all cause sedation. Reviewing the medications and cutting out any which could cause sedation is the first step. The thing to do in tandem with reviewing the medications is to screen for depression. Now, in a busy neurologic practice, this doesn't have to take a long time. We generally recommend using a PHQ screener, either the PHQ-2 or the PHQ-4, which are short screening tests, either two or four questions. If these are positive, they should lead to additional screening. And obviously, if depression is present, treatment of depression is extremely important. Depression is more common in multiple sclerosis than in the general population and worsens the outcome of multiple sclerosis, both the inflammatory disease and the progressive disease. Once these screenings have been done, the next thing is to screen for a sleep disorder. The most common sleep disorders are restless leg syndrome and obstructive sleep apnea. Patients with multiple sclerosis are more likely to have restless leg syndrome than the general population. And these comorbidities, again, can worsen the outcome in multiple sclerosis. So treatment of these not only improves the fatigue, but also may improve the overall outcome of the disease. If none of these things are present, or if these things are present and addressed, the next step is to use an exercise program. So it sounds paradoxical that we would recommend the use of a generalized exercise program in somebody who's fatigued. However, there is good evidence that shows that regular submaximal exercise can improve fatigue in patients with multiple sclerosis. Other strategies include energy conservation strategies and cooling vests when using exercise. A common question is whether stimulant medications are useful in the treatment of fatigue in multiple sclerosis. Although these do seem promising, several large studies have shown that stimulant medications do not improve fatigue when tested in a blinded fashion. And you risk off-target side effects such as sleep disruption um, when using stimulant medications, which can paradoxically worsen fatigue. Well, thank you for discussing this case with us, Dr. Tobin. Let's review our conversation as it applies to our learning objective. Discuss how non-pharmacologic treatments may be effective in relieving the common MS symptoms of urinary urgency, fatigue, spasticity, and gait dysfunction. What are the key things our listeners need to remember? So urinary dysfunction in multiple sclerosis can be contributed to by a variety of reversible issues, including bladder irritants and constipation. Urodynamic studies can identify urinary retention and detrusor overactivity, 
which are treated differently. Gait dysfunction and spasticity are most commonly driven by spinal cord disease in multiple sclerosis. Treatment of spasticity should follow a stepwise approach, starting with twice daily stretching. Fatigue is common in multiple sclerosis and is typically multifactorial. Evaluating for sedating medications, sleep and mood disorders should be completed initially. If none of these are found, a regular exercise program is the most effective strategy for fatigue management. Thank you, doctor. And we'll return with Dr. Oliver Tobin from the Mayo Clinic in just a moment. We'll continue our discussion in just a minute, but first I want to ask you a not-so-simple question. How has COVID-19 changed the way you treat your patients with multiple sclerosis? Do you have questions about the impact of MSDMTs on COVID-19 risk? About when, if ever, to delay dosing or stop therapy? Or probably the most important question, your patient has just tested positive for COVID-19. What should you do now? You'll find answers in the Multiple Sclerosis Educational Webinar, Managing MS in the Era of COVID-19. Join expert faculty from Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, Dr. Michael Kornberg and Dr. Elias Sotirkos, as they discuss evidence-based strategies to help keep patients with MS safe from COVID-19. The online Managing MS in the Era of COVID-19 webinar is accredited for 0.5 AMA, AAPA, or ANCC credits and is provided without charge. To watch Managing MS in the Era of COVID-19, visit cov19ms.dkb.com. That's cov19ms.dkbmed.com. And now, back to our discussion. Welcome back to this eMultiple Sclerosis Review podcast. Our guest is Dr. Oliver Tobin from the Department of Neurology at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. We've been talking about using non-pharmacologic treatments to relieve some of the most common MS symptoms, like urinary urgency, spasticity, and fatigue. I'd like to turn now to our second learning objective. Describe the interactions between multiple sclerosis and the common comorbidities of depression and obesity. With that in mind, if you would please, Dr. Tobin, take us back to the clinic with another patient scenario. This is a 45-year-old man with a history of trigeminal neuralgia and optic neuritis in his teens. He's been treated with interferon 1A since his diagnosis of multiple sclerosis at 17. He presents for his annual evaluation and does not have significant complaints. However, he appears withdrawn and discloses that he has recently been let go from his job as a computer programmer and divorced from his wife. On exam, he has a carotid brewery. His BMI is 36 and he's hypertensive. His exam is otherwise normal. This patient was initially diagnosed with MS as a teenager. Is his age of onset significant? Well, yes, it is, Bob. Um, he has pediatric onset multiple sclerosis. And patients with pediatric onset multiple sclerosis tend to have more severe disease activity than patients with later onset disease. Although they do take longer to develop progression, they have a higher risk of developing progression overall due to the duration of their disease. Patients with pediatric onset multiple sclerosis also have a high risk of cognitive impairment, even at onset. Although this patient does not disclose a history suggestive of progressive disease, he is at an age where progressive disease can start and should be screened for such. What clinical evaluation of this patient would you recommend? So the first thing to do with this patient is to do a history and examination. And the history and examination should include some form of cognitive assessment. I would then recommend that he have neuroimaging, both brain and spinal cord, 
to determine if he has new inflammatory disease. This will direct whether he needs to continue on his current disease-modifying therapy or switch to an alternative medication. We also need to determine if he has any spasticity or any other physical disability that he's not disclosing on history. For patients with pediatric onset disease, we usually recommend neuropsychometric testing, and particularly in this case where the patient has had recent life events that suggest that he may have some cognitive decline, neuropsychometric testing can be helpful. The other thing that could contribute to this is mood disturbance. And so, again, considering screening with a PHQ-2 or a PHQ-4 would be helpful in this case. The screening test for mood disturbance, the PHQ-2 or the PHQ-4, what if they're positive? What would be your next step? That's a good question, Bob, and that's often what stops people from doing mood screening in neurology clinics is what should we do if they're positive? And so the first thing to do is to assess for suicidality, so to assess if there's a current risk. And you can do that using um, additional suicidality screeners that are also available on the same website that the PHQ-2 and PHQ-4 are available, which is just a, a six-question questionnaire. If the patient has a high risk of suicidality at the time that they're in clinic, they need an urgent psychiatry evaluation, typically in the emergency department or if there is access to a psychiatrist that day. But for most patients, the vast majority of patients, that is not the case, and a routine psychiatry evaluation is recommended. We generally have a low threshold for treating a depression in the context of multiple sclerosis, because obviously depression on its own needs to be treated, but also because depression is associated with worse outcomes for multiple sclerosis itself. It's also associated with an increased vascular risk in patients with multiple sclerosis for reasons that are not entirely clear. This patient you brought us, he's been on interferon 1A for nearly 30 years. Is it possible that his current DMT might be responsible for, okay, maybe not all, but at least part of his presentation? I think that that's an important thing to address. Interferon therapies are associated with an increased risk of depression. In my experience, they generally don't cause depression on their own. However, they can certainly worsen depression that's there. And so if somebody has active depression, it can make the depression harder to treat. Interferon therapy was certainly the correct therapy for him to start on when he was 17. However, I think that decision needs to be revisited now. Number one, does he have any new inflammatory disease on interferon? And number two, is interferon causing any depression or any pain disorder that could be worsening his symptoms? And so those are two reasons which I might consider switching him from interferon to another medication or possibly even stopping disease-modifying therapy altogether, although he is somewhat young to stop disease-modifying therapy completely. I want to ask you about his weight, doctor. He's got a BMI at 36. That puts him in the obese category. How might that be affecting his MS? There's a lot of evidence in recent years showing that BMI is associated with risk of multiple sclerosis. And so weight in the teenage years increases your risk of subsequently developing multiple sclerosis. And similarly, patients who are overweight who have multiple sclerosis tend to have more severe inflammatory disease activity and also have an increased risk of progression and worse outcomes with progression. Also, quite disappointingly in my view, there's an increased risk of diagnostic delay in patients who are overweight, who are ultimately diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. The main impact of this from a patient point of view is that maintaining a normal weight is recommended. 
And so for this patient, reducing his weight into a normal BMI or, or even any reduction of his weight uh, would improve his outcomes. There's also the mechanical issue in patients who have gait dysfunction, because the less weight that they need to carry, the easier it is to ambulate. So even in somebody who has progressive disease, reducing weight can improve walking distance and walking speed. Certain diets have been associated with an improvement in fatigue in a non-controlled trial. However, this has not been confirmed in a randomized control study. Those are essentially healthy diets. Those diets uh, involve fruits, vegetables, and non-processed meats. However, for neuroprotection, which is a different question, the Mediterranean diet is the main one that's recommended. And the evidence for the Mediterranean diet primarily comes from the Alzheimer's disease literature. And the Mediterranean diet is high in fish, high in nuts, and low in red meat, and high in vegetables. And that's the main diet that's been shown to be neuroprotective but it's not a weight loss diet. So in patients who are overweight, reducing their weight initially is the primary recommendation. And then when their weight is within a range that's acceptable to them, then maintaining the weight on the Mediterranean diet is typically what's recommended. Last topic, doctor. Supplements. Vitamins, minerals, nutraceuticals, herbals. Clinicians get a lot of questions about which claims are real and which ones are not. What does the evidence show about supplements for people with MS? So, Bob, the main supplement with an evidence base for use in multiple sclerosis is vitamin D supplementation. And so nurses entering nursing school who had low vitamin D had a higher chance of developing multiple sclerosis later in life. And patients who have multiple sclerosis who have low vitamin D tend to have more relapses and a higher rate of progression. Some of our listeners may recall a trial some years ago of vitamin D supplementation for the treatment of relapsing disease in multiple sclerosis. This trial didn't reach its primary endpoint, primarily because it was hard to enroll because many patients were on vitamin D already. But the secondary endpoints did show a reduction in the number of new enhancing brain lesions in patients who were treated with high doses of vitamin D. In practice, I generally recommend that patients supplement vitamin D to within the upper end of the normal range. And at least in Minnesota, that typically involves supplementing with about 2,000 units of vitamin D3 per day. Other supplements that have been evaluated in multiple sclerosis include biotin. Biotin initially looked promising in a study of its effect on walking. However, this effect turned out to be short-lived, and the effect was not borne out in longer studies. Biotin is likely safe to take. However, the main downside is that it can interfere with the results of common lab tests which use biotin to, in the test reagent. So commonly, patients who are taking high doses of biotin can have falsely abnormal thyroid function tests, for example. There is very limited evidence for the use of other supplements in multiple sclerosis. At Mayo Clinic, our herb and supplements team generally recommend that patients have a exercise program and weight management program as the base of their non-pharmacologic management for any disease, because these have been shown to have the greatest impact on long-term survival. In patients who feel that supplements are beneficial to their symptoms, if they're on quite a lot of supplements, it's generally recommended to use the lowest number possible. And so to achieve that, it's usually recommended to withdraw each supplement individually to determine if there's one particular supplement that's helpful, and then if that one is helpful to continue on that supplement and remove the other ones that patients are taking. Well, thank you for bringing us this case, Dr. Tobin. Let's wrap things up by returning to our learning objective 
discussed the interactions between multiple sclerosis and the common comorbidities of depression and obesity. What should our listeners take away from this case discussion? The first thing is to recognize that medical comorbidities can increase diagnostic delay, increase inflammatory disease in patients with multiple sclerosis, and worsen progression. So identification and treatment of medical comorbidities is important, even in a neurology clinic. The second thing is that depression is a common comorbidity in multiple sclerosis, and it's associated with both worse outcomes from multiple sclerosis and an increase in vascular events. Screening for depression is relatively easy with simple and freely available screening tools, such as a PHQ-2, and these should be used to identify depression in patients with multiple sclerosis. And we should have a low threshold for treating depression or referring patients for evaluation and treatment of depression in the context of multiple sclerosis. Lastly, maintaining a normal vitamin D level is recommended for patients with multiple sclerosis. There is not good evidence for the use of other supplements for symptomatic benefits or disease modification in multiple sclerosis. If patients do wish to use other supplements, using the lowest number possible is recommended. Dr. Oliver Tobin from the Department of Neurology at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, thank you for joining us in today's eMultiple Sclerosis Review podcast. Thanks, Bob. This has been a lot of fun. For eMultiple Sclerosis Review, I'm Bob Busker. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at emultiplesclerosis.dkbmed.com. E-Multiple Sclerosis Review is supported by educational grants from Bristol-Myers Squibb, Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation, and Sanofi Genzyme. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. E-Multiple Sclerosis Review is copyright, with all rights reserved, by DKB Med, LLC. Thank you for listening.